0: University podcast in our series Puzzles About God. Last time Austin led a discussion on the Trinity and we started to look at the boundaries or rules of play for how we should think about or theorize about the Trinity. And this time Justin is going to lead a discussion on some positive proposals for how to understand uh, the idea of the Trinity, the, the idea that God is one and that God is three. So, Justin,
1: let's go. All right. So, my task before me today is pretty straightforward, just to make sense of the Trinity. Yeah. Uh, no. <laughs> um. Take about five, ten minutes. <laughs> yeah. Yep. <laughs> no, so here's what we're going to do. Um, uh, I want to sort of sharpen the problem. Um, given what Austin covered last time, I think we're left with a pretty serious puzzle, and I want to formulate that pretty carefully. And then I'm just going to lay out for your consideration um, appropriately three examples of ways that maybe that problem could be solved. And the the project today is not to try to settle on what is the right solution to this problem, or even if any of the solutions we consider is the right solution. Um, but just to to look at some ways that one maybe could solve this problem, to show that you know it's not like a hopeless. Contradiction or anything like that.
0: So it's maybe a little daunting sounding. You're talking about this this puzzle that uh, you know we've got a lot of different ways to try to solve, but you're not sure what's the right way. I mean, last time we learned like how not to be heretics. I thought that was. I thought that was. We were done.
1: What's, what's the puzzle here? <laughs> yeah. So once we've so we saw last time we we saw the sort of official. Doctrine of the Trinity that's been accepted by the Christian Church, which is that there are three persons in One being or one essence uh, different languages used sometimes Um, And we also saw a bunch of ways of uh, Trying to make sense of the Trinity that we ruled as out of bounds Well, not we didn't I mean the, the church has ruled them as out of bounds and and the trouble is that once you've settled on that formula and ruled out those options that we said were ruled out, it looks like we're left with um, a doctrine that entails what's called an inconsistent triad. Okay? So what is that? Well, an inconsistent triad is a set of three propositions, you know, like three statements, which can't all be true, because if any two of them are true, those two together entail that the third one is false. Okay, so in the case of the doctrine of the Trinity, it appears at first like the doctrine of the Trinity entails an inconsistent triad, because it appears to entail the following three propositions. Proposition one, there is one God. Proposition 2, there are three divine persons. And Proposition 3, every divine person is God. It looks like all three of those claims are official commitments of the Orthodox doctrine of the Trinity. But it also looks as if those claims are jointly inconsistent. We can see this pretty easily. So take Propositions 1 and 2. There's one God and there are three divine persons. Well, it seems like if there's one God, and there are three divine persons, then not every divine person can be a God, because there's not enough gods to go around. So if propositions one and two are true, that makes it seem like proposition three has to be false, the proposition that every divine person is God. Or take propositions uh, two and three, the proposition that, There are uh, three divine persons, and the proposition that every divine person is God. Okay, well, if there are three of these divine persons, and every one of them is God, that seems to imply that we've got three gods. Which doesn't fit with Proposition 1, that says there's only one God. Or again, take Propositions 1 and 3. Proposition 1 said there's one God, 3 said... Um, that every divine person is God. Well, look, if there's only one God and every divine person is God, then it seems like there's got to be only one divine person. Um, We we don't have enough gods for there to be three divine persons that are all God. And so it looks like Proposition 2, that there are three divine persons. Turns out to be false. Uh, it looks like maybe we're in trouble here. We've got these commitments that the church has said, this is the right way to understand the teaching of the scriptures and of Christ. Uh, we've ruled out these other kinds of views as heresies. But it looks like not uh, not all three of these commitments can be true together. So what are we going to do? That's, uh, that's the puzzle here.
2: Can you rescue us, Justin, from our quandary? <laughs> Can you lead us out of the maze into the light?
1: Well, um, let me point to three possible routes out, out, of, out of the maze. <laughs> uh, so here is one possible solution that some people have uh, defended. In fact, this one seems to be fairly popular these days. I see it around a lot. Um, one possible way out of this problem zooms in on Proposition 3. The proposition which says that every divine person is God. Now, what some people want to say here is that this proposition is actually ambiguous. And that's because the word is can be used in two different ways. We have what's called the is of identity on the one hand, and the is of predication on the other hand. So, to illustrate, suppose I say something like, Clark Kent is Superman. What I'm doing there is using the is of identity. So I'm, I'm identifying Clark Kent with Superman. I'm saying that they're one in the same individual. Mm-hmm. All right, that's the is of identity. On the other hand, there's the is of predication, which I would be using if I were to say something like Clark Kent is tall. Uh, what I'm doing there is I'm not like identifying Clark Kent with... Tallness, or something like that, right? I'm I'm predicating an attribute or a property of Clark Kent. I'm saying he has this attribute of being tall, and that's another way that we use the word is. We use it in predications like that. Okay, so what some people have said, people who've been thinking about this puzzle about the Trinity, is that we can solve the puzzle by reading Proposition three as using the is of predication and not the is of identity. What it means to say that every divine person is God, it's just a way of saying something like every divine person has a certain attribute. And usually what people pushing this view want to say is that the attribute is just the attribute of being divine or something like this. Um, and
0: you, you might say it's just like saying Clark Kent is human. I guess he's not human. Clark Kent is <laughs> Kryptonian. Yeah. He has a certain nature. Yeah, Uh, And so you'd be saying every divine person is God. It's like saying every one of them has a certain nature, namely a divine nature. A divine nature, yeah. Okay,
1: now it turns out that if you read Proposition 3 in that way, then uh, it's no longer possible to derive a contradiction from these three propositions. They turn out to be logically consistent with each other. However... I think there is a really important note of caution that needs to be raised here. It turns out that the most straightforward way of trying to model God's triunity, on which all three propositions come out true, where Proposition 3 is being understood as using the is of predication, is a view called partialism. And that view is of highly questionable orthodoxy. The thought is like this. Um, if we read the Proposition 3 as using the is of predication, then we can, make, uh, we can tell a story on which all three propositions are true by saying that each of the divine persons is either a part or something like a part of God. Because then we can have uh, one God that's composed of three different divine persons, and each of those persons has the attributes of being eternal and all-powerful and so forth. And that would be one way to make all three of these propositions true, uh, at least prima facie. But it's, it's controversial whether or not that's an orthodox view, to have the divine persons just be parts of one God.
2: I mean, it seems what you're sacrificing is that, and I think, I think traditionally it's been thought of, that each of the divine persons has the full, the full divinity, Uh, The full divine nature. The full divine nature. um, Not as something spread out or shared in the way that, you know, there are other Kryptonians. I mean, maybe not anymore. I guess Supergirl, right? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But there were other Kryptonians. And that was just a nature that was shared by many people. Um, And versus, we're going to say when we say that Jesus has has the divine essence or the Holy Spirit has a divine essence. that isn't just a property that happens to be shared with other things or other beings. There's only one being that has that divine.
0: Yeah. So the risk there uh, is that partialism could easily collapse into tritheism, right? Where you have three, uh, three divine people, each of which has their own instance, instance of a divine nature of the, of God nature or something like that Mm -hmm. and what's so different about that from like three kryptonians or three humans right what Mm -hmm. what is it exactly that makes for the one god one being part of the Mm -hmm. of the trinitarian formula on this view
1: well i mean i think the partialist can still maintain that there's this one being of a certain sort that's composed of the three persons. The problem is it seems like now what we've got is a being that's composed of three gods. Exactly. Which we don't want. Yeah. yeah. So one way that, uh, so there there's um, a well-known evangelical apologist named William Lane Craig who holds a version of partialism. And he tries to get around this problem by actually saying that the divine persons don't each have a full instance of the divine nature that they're divine in a different way than by having the divine nature and an example that he uses is like there's more than one way to be feline you can be feline by having cat nature being a cat or you can be feline uh by being like a distinctive part of a cat is i think the way he puts it at one time because we think for example that a cat's skeleton is feline and that a cat's DNA is feline. And so he wants to say, oh, we should understand the divinity of the persons as something like that, like maybe it's about being a distinctive part of God. But there's a huge cost there, because it's really hard to see how that's going to fit with the uh, most widely accepted creeds in the church about the Trinity. Yeah. Even if, as Craig definitely thinks, you can make it satisfy scripture. Um, He thinks you can make it, that's not obvious, but that's his view.
0: Right, so if we set out last time that our tests for uh, playing within bounds are, uh, are satisfying scripture and satisfying or agreeing with the creeds, then it seems like Craig's view will clearly fail the second test. Um, and it seems like it will be hard for the partialist to satisfy all of the creedal statements about the Trinity full stop. Maybe not impossible, yeah. but it definitely seems like a, a big challenge for that view. Absolutely. Now, on the scriptural test, it's not as clear that it's impossible, because most of what we see about the Trinity in Scripture is more about the actions of the Trinity than about the, mm-hmm. the metaphysics or the being of the Trinity or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. Um,
1: I suppose but, I should say, in fairness, Craig does think that his view fits with what he takes to be the most important creeds. Yeah, he thinks of creeds, its but not all Yeah, of them. so he thinks it fits with Nicaea, but not with um, the Athanasian Creed. It's not clear to me he's right about this, but he at least thinks mm-hmm. that yeah. this is the case. Right, so we got our, our warning
0: sign posted on, on, strategy uh, one. on the first strategy. Yeah. If you go for this uh, is of predication route, you yeah. might be walking into a dangerous, a d- dangerous territory. territory. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Hmm. So what other strategies are, are there? Is there another yeah. way to, to read that prop, Proposition 3 about uh, every divine person being God?
1: Yeah, there's another, I think, really interesting approach that some people have taken in the recent years in um, the philosophical literature, which, which is to say that there may actually be yet a third way to interpret Proposition 3, because there may be yet a third sense of the word is that's kind of floating somewhere in between the is of identity and the is of predication. Now to illustrate this third sense of is, uh, I'm gonna for a moment set the Trinity aside and we're gonna think about a different puzzle that philosophers have engaged with over the years. So imagine that I'm an artist and I'm in my studio and I've got my desk in front of me and on that desk is a lump of clay. And suppose I take that lump of clay and I form it into a statue. Now, Suppose that after that, I wanna take, for some reason, I wanna take an inventory of all the things on my desk. Well, one thing I'm gonna include in that inventory is the statue that is on my desk, that clay statue. Now, if you were to come in and say to me, oh, you forgot, you left something off of your inventory, you included the statue, but you forgot about the lump of clay that the statue is made of, I'm gonna give you a really weird look. (laughs) <laughs> uh, I'm going to think that you're saying something very silly. Because, and and probably what I'll say in response is, I didn't forget about the lump of clay. Uh, the statue is the lump of clay. So by including the statue in my inventory, I thereby included the lump of clay in my inventory. Ah, but you, let us suppose, are a clever philosopher. And you come back with the following argument. You say, well... Think about this: was the lump of clay there before you made the statue and I'll say yes, it was. Would the lump of clay still be there if you flattened the statue? It's like squashed it, and I would say yes, it would be. Well then how can the lump of clay and the statue be the same thing? They seem to have different properties. The lump of clay can be or it can exist even when the statue doesn't. The lump of clay would survive uh, being. Flattened, uh, but the statue wouldn't. They seem to have all these different properties. Okay, so here's the puzzle then. On the one hand, it seems like there's a really good reason to think that the statue just is the lump of clay, that they're the same thing. But on the other hand, there also seems to be a really good reason to think that the statue isn't the lump of clay, that they're not the same thing. Okay, well, here is one approach that some philosophers take to this puzzle. Some philosophers want to say that, in fact, the lump of clay and the statue are different objects, but they stand in this very, very intimate relationship to each other that makes it appropriate to say things like, the lump of clay clay is the statue, and to count them as one thing, at least sometimes. Um, That very, very intimate relation has come to be known as the relation of constitution. So the idea is that the statue is constituted by the lump of clay. The lump of clay constitutes the statue. Okay, what is this constitution relation? Well, let me just kind of gesture at it by giving you some of the things that it implies. So if the the statue is constituted by the lump of clay, one thing that that means is that the statue is, in some sense, made of the lump of clay. Another thing it means is that the statue and the lump of clay have all the same parts, at least at some levels of decomposition. So they're made of all the same clay particles, for example, the very same ones. And it means that the lump of clay and the statue are uh, existing in exactly the same place at the same time. Those are some features of objects which stand in this constitution relation. Sharing of parts, sharing of location and one of them makes makes up the other, something like that. Okay, now, uh, what some people who take this approach to the statue and the lump say is that there's an is that they'll call the is of constitution that we use when we say things like the statue is the lump. What that means, on their view, is just that the statue is constituted by the lump. So they're distinct objects but they stand in this really, really intimate relation, and we use the word is to sometimes to express that intimate constitution relation. All right, let's carry that back over to the Trinity. So so some philosophers have have said, like, hey, this idea of constitution and the statue lump business, we might be able to use this to illuminate the doctrine of the Trinity. And what they do is they say, take Proposition 3, that every divine person is God. What if that is there is the is of constitution? Then what it means is that every divine person is constituted by God. Now, actually, if we're being really careful here, what these people normally say is is that every divine person is constituted by this one concrete divine nature. Um, And that does seem to capture what the creeds are saying. So I think that's an adequate way of understanding the claim that every divine person is God. Um, but if you read Proposition 3 that way, then it turns out that uh, the, our set of three propositions are consistent. Because even though there are three divine persons, and there's one concrete divine nature, that's okay because the one concrete divine nature can constitute more than one thing. It can constitute all three divine persons. And that's because in general, people who go for this constitution view about like the statue and the lump and so forth... Um, are, are open to the idea and, and, and will often say, yeah, you can have one object that at, all at once constitutes multiple other objects. Here's an example. Um, there are in certain pieces of like ancient architecture, you will get pillars that were also carved to be statues. So, like, the pillar is not only holding up part of the building, but it's been carved in such a way that it looks like a statue of, like, a person holding up the building or something like this. And um, what some people will say about this is, like, what you've got here is a a hunk of marble that is constituting a pillar and also at the same time constituting a statue. So, similarly, the thought is, well, the one divine, uh, concrete, divine nature could be all at once constituting three divine persons. That's what this view wants to say.
0: I see a tritheistic kind yeah. of uh, view looming. Uh-huh. It's not, that's, this is not a well-worked-out objection, but, uh-huh. but the worry is that a, any person that's constituted by a divine nature... Is is a, is go- is a, a god. god? Yeah, yeah. And that if there are three such people, then there are three gods.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I have that worry too. So I remember that there's there's a one paper where a couple of authors, it's a Jeff Brower and Mike Ray, have a really interesting defense of this view. Um, they were actually kind of the pioneers of this view. Uh, they have a paper where I remember one of their concluding comments is like, "Look, we have." Competing intuitions about how to count things, and in these constitution cases, sometimes we think you know we should count one thing, and sometimes we should think we think we should count three things. Maybe one thing they would say then, and I'm not sure about this. I'm just kind of speculating, is that um, yeah, on one way of counting there are three gods, and on another way of counting there's one god, and the the tradition just forces us to use our language in a certain way so that when we're talking about the thing as God, we should only use the, the way of counting that gives you one. And when we're talking about the thing as divine persons, we should only use the way of counting that gives you three. Um, they, another route is maybe they would deny that any person which has a divine nature is automatically thereby a god. Yeah. I mean, you could potentially try to deny that, just, though I see the plausibility of it. Yeah.
0: But there, so there are worries for that view too. Is there another solution to that? You said maybe there were three solutions you were going to go through. Yeah,
1: and and there are more than three that people have defended. I'm Not just probably. giving three examples. Um, so the third example says uh, it instead of focusing in on proposition three, it kind of zooms in on proposition two, which is the proposition that says that there are three divine persons. Now, initially, it might seem like the proposition that there are three divine persons implies that there are three different things, each of which is a divine person. But the strategy that I'm going to present now denies that. It says you can have one thing that is three people. You don't have to have three different things that, that are each a divine person in order to have three divine persons mean, you'll sometimes hear people say things like, I'm not the same person that I was a decade ago. Now, I don't know uh, whether we should take that kind of language literally or not. I'm actually inclined to think that that probably shouldn't be taken literally. It's just sort of a dramatic way of saying that I've changed a lot. But there are some philosophers who've thought that there are at least some like hypothetical uh, changes that an object could undergo such that if it did undergo those changes, it would not be the same person as itself as it was in the past. It would, it would fail to be the same person as itself across time. So one example of this has been uh, discussed by uh, the philosopher Ned Markosian. Um, you might imagine, uh, well, his example is of a person who dies and then their body is preserved as like a mummy or in some other way and then after a long time, some powerful being comes along and begins to gradually transform that mummy into a living person again, but a very physically and psychologically very different person than before. Well, you might think that what's going on here is, look, we've got this one roughly human-shaped object that persists all the way through the story, right? It would never look like some human-shaped object had gone out of existence or popped into existence at any point in that process. But you might also think intuitively that that new person is not the same person as the original if they're like really dramatically different, especially like psychologically and so forth. So so if you think about cases like that, you might think, and of course this is controversial, but you might think that what we have here is a case where an object that's a person at an early stage in its life and also a person at a late stage in its life is not the same person as itself from the early stage to the later stage because of the dramatic sorts of changes it went through. Okay, now you might think, look, how could this possibly be helpful for addressing the Trinity? Because we don't want to say that God is like one divine person at a time. Like first God is the Father, and then later after changing in a certain way God is the Son, and then after changing again God is the Spirit. For one thing, Um, You know, a lot of people will be very leery about talk of God changing at all. But for another thing, that's not how the Trinity is supposed to work. You don't have one person at a time. You've got all three persons at once, or timelessly, if you think that God is outside of time. Well, here, though, is a way in which some people um, have thought you could maybe make sense of the Trinity using this idea. Some people have suggested that maybe God lives, like, three different lives at once. And that God does this by having like three uh, more or less independent streams of consciousness going on at once. And in one of these streams of consciousness, God becomes incarnate. And in the others, God doesn't. And so forth. We may not be able to do anything like that with our limited cognitive abilities, but maybe God can with God's much less limited cognitive abilities. Maybe God can have like three different streams of consciousness going on at once. And so, in effect, live three different lives at once. And the suggestion here is that if God's like that, you might think that God is not the same person as himself across the three different lives or streams of consciousness. Um, So that God is sort of living life as three different persons simultaneously, or something like that. That's the basic idea here. And in that view, um, it turns out that we have just one thing, this one God... That is three people, um, because it's not the same person as itself at every in every like you know part of its life or every every life of its I guess, um, and so uh, it turns out we've got one God, and we've got three persons. So propositions one and two look secure, and also every divine person is God, but with the is of identity.
0: So my. Uh, I, I like this uh, picture a lot. I think in a way it's kind of obvious that this is what at least the people who were, the like church fathers who were gathering and writing the creedal statements were thinking uh, when they said, like, there's one God, three persons, is they meant, like, there's one God who is three persons. Uh, in the most straightforward way <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that you could think of, which is this way. Uh, so I think it has a lot going for it, uh, both in terms of the scripture test and the creed test that we've talked about. Uh-huh. I am somewhat wary of the, uh, the idea of, the, of a kind of psychologistic understanding of personhood uh-huh. that reduces a person to a stream of consciousness which I think is a very modern way of understanding personhood, and I think might not be... I think that might be kind of foreign to the Church Father. So on the one hand, I think the view as you've described it is very uh, friendly to the creedal test. On the other hand, when you add in the psychologistic understanding of personhood, where the way we understand what it is for God to be three persons is for God to have three streams of consciousness, now I'm like, "Uh, is that what they meant by three persons, maybe, maybe it has something to do with like a stream of consciousness, but maybe it has more to do with, uh, like a principle of activity or energy or some other terms that mm-hmm. might've been more philosophically or theologically familiar to those, to those, those people, creedal yeah. fathers. Mm-hmm. And, um, so what I would want to do is say, here's a general framework is to say, for this view, you can solve the puzzle this way by saying one being could be three, three persons. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, but then you could plug in a different theory of personhood mm. for different versions of that solution. And one yes. theory might be a psychologistic mm-hmm. stream of consciousness theory of personhood. But another theory might say something different about what, yeah. are, what are people are such that one
1: being could be three persons. Yep, that seems totally like the right thing to say to me about that because actually what's the key ingredient of the model is not the three streams of consciousness so much as it is the idea that um, being a person that is numerically identical is of identity to another person is not all by itself sufficient for being the same person as that other person right right? you have to have further relations hooking them together either over time or from if there's some sense in which god has like multiple simultaneous lives across lives etc yeah Mm. okay great thanks justin Yeah. yeah